Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, if you're joining us, we're in a series in Mark, and we're looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and we're basically at the last around the last 12 hours of his life, and we're looking at the passion, the passion of Christ. And each scene uh, seems to be getting more intense and revealing something about the passion that perhaps we haven't thought about in a while, or maybe never thought about. And uh, it reveals something about Jesus, reveals something about us. And now we come to the trial, if you want to call it that. And this is another Markin sandwich. Uh, it's his sixth and his last. And what we mean by a Markin sandwich is uh, basically this. Mark uh, introduces sort of two stories, tells one, and then there's another one. So there's two stories sort of told together. And there's a middle story, and then there's an outer story. And they sort of help explain each other. And the middle story is, almost, is always the meat it's always the important part of the story, although they both sort of enlighten each other. We look at it sort of like this. Here's your sandwich. This is Peter and Jesus get introduced together. Then you have Christ's confession, and you have Peter's denial. And so the way Mark puts these together brings out some very interesting things about discipleship that we're going to have to wait until next week to see because even though we like seeing the whole sandwich, I like really covering them all together because they kind of come alive when you see them together. There's too much in Christ's confession here. That middle piece, we need to focus on the middle piece, and then next week we'll look at the outer piece. So what you have is an outer and an inner story that interplay and illuminate each other is what you have. Now, here's the thing about them. Peter and Jesus are both on trial in this text. They're both on trial. Jesus is a legal one. Pete's, Peter's is a personal one. And you see in the contrast some very important things that we'll highlight next week. Well, we need to look closely at Jesus' trial. And it's dramatic, as you would expect, and it's soaked in irony. You think about this, it's sort of a kangaroo court. Um, sort of an illegal, unofficial court gathering together. Uh, attempting to try someone that they already believe is guilty without good evidence, and they're just trying to pin something on him to get the verdict that they want, that they're looking for. Verse 55 says they were looking for evidence to put him to death. That's, that's really what they want to do. And here's the interesting thing, is the irony of it, is that this is an unjust, as unjust of a trial as you'll ever see. And maybe the most unjust ever, since you have Jesus involved. The Jews will break every law that they have about the why, the when, and the how of uh, their jurisprudence. And these religious leaders, uh, you know, are on a winch, witch hunt to begin with. But here's the thing that comes out of this trial. The truth about everyone is crystal clear when it's done. Even though it's an unjust trial, and even though everything about it is wrong, 
the truth comes out in every single way. Haven't you ever heard, you've heard this many times, I've seen it many times, you see it on TV. Uh, you'll hear somebody say, well, all come out in the trial. Now, you and I have seen trials that doesn't all come out in the trial. But in this trial, it does. We'll see that the religious leaders, we'll see the religious leaders in their full light. We will see Peter in his full light. And we will see Jesus in his full light. Everyone is exposed in this trial. Despite it's, Jesus has his day in court. In fact, everybody does. Everybody wants their day in court when they're accused. And everybody gets it here on this day. And in fact, it's the theological high point of the book. Right here. Because Jesus does something he has not done the entire time. The entire book. So what I think we ought to see, and I've got to tell you, I wrestled with this as much as any text in the book of Mark. What is it we need to see and how do we need to approach this text? It was agonizing this week. Uh, I just decided to approach it like this. I think what we see in here is how our sin condemns us. And then we see how Jesus takes that condemnation on himself. How our own sin condemns us and how Jesus takes our condemnation on himself. Now, you have Jesus on trial. And I think it's important that even right now Jesus is still on trial in the minds of many people and he might be on trial in yours as you're investigating him and thinking about him and maybe you form some conclusions about him and... Um, you're not really sure if he's worthy of your followership, of your, of your submission. Uh, and I want you to be careful when you're examining Jesus because there are forces that are working against you. You have internal forces working against you and you have Satan working against you. Listen to this. If our gospel is veiled, Paul says, Remember, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You'll miss who Jesus is, and there's a lot. There's a lot of external forces working against you to see who he really is. Keep that in mind as we go through this. So there are a number of issues that come in this text, I think, that... Uh, Show us how sinful we are. Some number of actions. Remember, these are Israel's best citizens. These are the people everyone thought were the most religious. There's a number of things that happen in this trial, and I'm going to work through them fairly quickly. I have way too much probably to finish today. Uh, first of all, it blinds us to the reality of truth. That's the first thing sin does, is it absolutely blinds you to the reality of truth. Uh, Jesus was a threat to them. We saw this last week. He was a threat to their world. So if in any way Jesus is a threat to you, it's going to be really hard to see him for who he really is. Okay? They loved their power, these religious leaders. They loved their authority. They loved their notoriety. They loved their influence. They loved their popularity. They loved their financial security. That all came through the temple. And Jesus was threatening that. And they didn't want to lose it. If you've got something you don't want to lose, 
be very careful. You won't see Jesus the way you ought to because he is a threat. Verses 56 to 59, uh, all their attempts at discrediting him fail. Uh, They just don't work. Uh, And you realize real quickly, Jesus is not guilty. Let me see if I can, 56 to 59. Many gave false testimony. I mean, they, they just, they didn't, just not doing anything right. They just went and got as many testimonies as they could. But remember what happened? None of their testimonies could agree. Some stood up and gave the false testimony that he was going to destroy the temple made with hands and rebuild it in three days. That's a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus said in John or uh, in 13, uh, Mark 13, 1 to 2, when he predicted that the temple would be destroyed. Yet even on this point, even on this point, their testimony did not agree. And so what you have is as hard as they're looking, they can't find a way to accuse him. So Jesus is really not guilty, and that's what Mark is trying to make clear. Even uh, their contrived attempts at getting him convicted didn't work. And it reminds me that this is some of the things you have. Jesus is not guilty, and that is true. That is true. But what's real to them is the things they don't want to lose. And here's where sin will blind you. Sin will really blind you to the things that that are real versus what's true. You may feel certain things, experience certain things. You may want certain things, and they feel very real to you. But they may not be true. And sin will keep you from seeing what is true. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, she is uh, uh, the the gal who um, was a lesbian and became a believer Uh, She talks about her life, what felt real to her at one time, and then how it was not true. And she literally says these words, my life had become real, but not true. It felt very real to me to be certain things, but it wasn't reality. And then she said, the reality of my lived experience clashed with the truth of God's word. And in the course of your day, you got to make sure that you're distinguishing between what feels real to you and what is true. And so it was blinding. They, they were blinded. It blinded them not only to the truth of who Jesus was, because here's the other thing it'll do. If you're making that mistake, it'll blind you to the truth of who you are. They, bro- they were breaking laws. They were lying. They were hypocrites of the worst kind, as you'll see in this text. But that did not bother them. So the first thing sin does is blinds us to the reality of truth. The second thing it does is it actually causes us to repress truth that we do see. Even the truth that we can see, that's obvious, that we know deep in our souls, we'll still repress it to keep something we want that feels real, that feels right, that feels good. And that's what happens to them. Caiaphas, the high priest, gets very frustrated that the false accusations, the false witnesses he's brought together aren't working. And so he just decides to look right at Jesus in the face. And the text literally says, he stood up. He comes up off of his seat. And he looks Jesus right in the face. And he puts Jesus sort of on, a, on the witness stand and questions him directly. And there's great irony in this. Because here's what he says. Let's see if I can find these verses here. 
Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, have you no answer? What is this that they are testifying against you? See, their testimony was wrong. And Jesus wasn't going to do anything about that. Remember, he stayed silent during that. I mean, there was nothing to, re- to refute. They're clearly, their testimony wasn't right, so he didn't answer them. It's typical Jesus. But then the high priest questions him directly, and he says this to him. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? This is the key statement right here. This is what he's asking, and this is what he is literally saying. Now, let me say this. This is almost verbatim what Peter said of Jesus in chapter 8. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's almost verbatim. And so some, another really incredible piece of irony is at work here. What this is literally, and the interesting thing, it's, it's a Greek statement. It's a statement in Greek that puts a question mark at the end. And so, in effect, you have one of Christ's accusers. You have the confession of who Jesus really is in the mouth of one of his accusers comes out just like it came out in Peter's. And this happens twice in the book of Mark, because later we're going to see a Roman centurion. That means two people involved in Jesus' death actually become the two who actually confess him verbally to be who he actually is. And so what you have in this sort of, it's a statement with a sort of a question mark at the end of it. And this is really interesting, especially if you compare it to Matthew, because Matthew says that Jesus' response was. Because Jesus will say here, I am. He says, I am. Well, in Matthew, he says, you have said it. You have said it yourself. Do you hear what you're saying? Because truth just came out of you. That's the point. Now listen, that statement, okay, is an indirect way of Jesus saying, yes, You said it, it's true, yes is the answer to the question. But it also calls attention to what the person may inside also think or feel. You have said it yourself. Out of you came the truth. So your words sort of betray something deep within you that you're trying to conceal potentially from yourself. You may know it, but not want to believe it. That's the essence of this. We are capable of knowing truth, but being so threatened by it that we'll deny it outright. And when it comes to spiritual things, this is very true. Watch yourself. Remember, sin is very deceiving. That's the whole point of this text. It'll blind you to what's true, and it'll also make you repress truth you do know, that you do see. Romans 1.18, we know this text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth. We're capable of doing that. In fact, later he will say, we actually exchange the truth for a lie. We do that. It's the essence of sinfulness. It's the essence of sin. We know it's true. But we deny it because it's threatening. We can't even... Here's what basically it is. Sin will keep you from owning up to truth you already know. Now, here's the third thing about sin. 
Uh, it hides behind the condemnation of others. It hides behind the condemnation of others. Uh, you see in dramatic fashion that this priest stands up and rips his clothes off. And this was not, it was very uncommon because it could only happen that a high priest would tear his clothes off in this sort of legal uh, uh, you know, event, in this legal proceedings. He would tear his clothes only if a person committed blasphemy. It's the only time he could do it. And so he stands up, but he was not allowed to, to, to create a verdict. He was not allowed to do that, although he says right away, this guy's guilty and we don't need to go any further. He deserves death. He actually says that, and he shouldn't have, because it's not his place to do that. He can rip his clothes saying, that sounds like blasphemy to me, but others have to see it, but he can't help himself. He's so desperate for this conviction. And here's the thing about sin. We love pointing fingers at others. I'll just tell you, your sin will make you feel. Your sin uh, makes me feel better. I just want you to know that. That's the truth. It can. Uh, Nothing makes a guilty heart feel better than lashing out at other people for their sin. Now, this text will do something to you, and if you're like me, and you probably are, um, we all just hate injustice when we see it. I grew up being bullied, and so I hate them. I can hate a bully, somebody who takes advantage of somebody weaker is something that, is, that, that makes the top of my head burn off. I could tell you all kinds of stories about in my lifetime how God, uh, I'm not even going to say it. But have you noticed any unjust, in, injustice lately that has made your skin sort of boil? If you're in the political environment right now, you're going insane. You need pills. I can't even watch it. And I guarantee you see injustices all around. There's injustice both ways. There's injustice everywhere in there. And you're, you're Blood is boiling, politically. Uh, if, if this text isn't enough for you, which by the time we're done, you'll see it. Uh, I, in the NFL this week, I was boiling over uh, the linebacker for uh, uh, Cincinnati and what he did. And the, he didn't get suspended for games for what he did. Perfect. I won't go into the story, but I just thought, oh, gosh, that guy shouldn't be playing. But he's playing. Uh, ISIS and what's happening there in Mosul. I've been praying all week, and my heart's just been centered around the people in Mosul right now. Um, it's enough. It's, it's, it's almost too much. And it's everywhere you look. Uh, and so we all have this heightened sense of injustice, but not in ourselves. Not in ourselves. And these guys are proving it to us right here. Gosh, these guys are tearing their own clothes off for someone else's apparent sin. It's not even sin. So let me just tell you something about this. You have to be really careful. You have to really beware. Because in the moment you hate injustice, self-righteousness can creep in and make you feel much better than you really are. 
One of the worst things about seeing a lot of injustice is you'll feel that much better about yourself. Well, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't be like that. That's not how I think. And you know what happens? You end up betraying yourself. And you know what's incredible about this, this statement? He says to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? You know why he says Blessed One and not the Son, not God? Why doesn't he say God there? He says Blessed One. That's a Jewish circumlocution. It's basically a, it's the Jews thought God's name was entirely too sacred to say. His name was too sacred to say, so you had to come up with a different sort of, a different word, a synonym. You had to call him something else besides his name. And so here he is making sure that he doesn't say the wrong thing. Meanwhile, all of his own hypocrisy is just being laid bare. And when he rips his shirt off, another way that Mark you know, talks about ripping off of clothes, we've had a number of naked people in the last couple of weeks, if you've been here. If you weren't here last week, we had a streaker. Okay? And so uh, you can see he's very hypocritical. We do some things okay, and that just makes everything we do okay. Sin hides behind the condemnation of others. And you can see them doing it. And uh, uh, I don't have time to read all of this, but I do want to read something here because I think it was really interesting. I'm reading a book called Fool's Talk by Oz Guinness. And uh, I'm reading it slow. It's pretty thick. Um, but everything I read is amazing, so you've got to read it slow. And he just talks about Adam and Eve and, and sin blaming in this one particular section. And he defines sin as sin is the claim to the right to myself and to how I see things. So he defines sin. Uh, on the other hand, sin is the deliberate repudiation of God and the truth and his way of seeing things. And he says, if my way of seeing things is decisive, anyone who differs from me is wrong by definition, including God. Now, hold on to that. Even God is wrong. And how many times have you thought God wrong? How many, I wonder how many ways you think God is wrong now. And maybe he's on trial in your mind. There's no one off limits when we feel right. Not even God. And then he writes, especially God, because his way of seeing things is so much more powerful and therefore so much more threatening. And he says, you know, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed uh, the serpent. The serpent, if he could have been asked, would have probably blamed God too. Adam sort of said, hey, you, no, no, the woman you gave me. And then he writes this, all roads lead to Rome. All fingers point at God. So long as the world's last sin remains unconfessed, the buck will keep on passing and passing, and the final finger will always point at God. God, why did you allow? God, you shouldn't have put me in that circumstance. God, you shouldn't have made me like this. If you wanted me to believe her, be a believer, why'd you make me an atheist? Why'd you make me this? Why'd you do it that way? Why'd you do this? We'll blame him, and we've got him on trial all the time in our minds. Why would you allow this? Why would you do that? He's always on trial, and it always comes back to him. And then he writes this in the end, and I can't tell you all of this stuff, but 
It's pretty interesting, but he says, sin must always, in the end, justify itself by framing God. That's what sin does. It frames God. Because at the end of the day, when there's no one else to blame, and you don't want to take what's yours, all you can do is look at God and say, well, I guess you shouldn't have started this whole thing. I guess you shouldn't have made that. So he says, to excuse ourselves, we have to accuse him. And you might be doing that in your heart right now. In short, he says, sin frames God falsely. There's another thing sin does in this text. I wasn't sure exactly how to say this, uh, but, it, but it lashes out at others. Just not just hide behind our condemnation, but it also lashes out at others when it can in an effort really to protect itself. And you can see at the very end of this text what they do. They begin to spit on him. They blindfold him. They strike him with their fist. They say, prophesy, which is total irony because everything is coming true in this. If, you, if you, we could sit and talk about all the different prophecies that are coming true. Peter's about to deny him just like he said. They're beating him just like he said they would do. Everything is coming true. All of his prophesi- prophecy Prophecies are coming true right in this text, and they don't see it, and they're asking him to prophesy, to prophesy but he, they're already coming true right before their eyes. They just don't want to see it. It's truth they don't want to see. So that's just incredible irony. But all of this, this sort of outlash, this brutality, about, brutality from the best among us, this is just when you sort of lose it. You know, in protection of yourself, you lash out at the sin of others. You can't handle judgment, so you just freak out on others. And it's right here, at this particular point right here, when they lose it the way they do and become as undignified and inhuman that all of their sin just just so blatant before me, you start to wonder, who should be on trial here? Who should be on trial? And of course, we're going to learn right now that their day is coming. Our day in court's coming. And this is where we see probably the most, just an incredible way we see our only hope. Because in condemning God, in condemning Jesus, we've revealed our own sin. We've revealed that sin is actually condemning us. Our sin is condemning us. By the time you're finished with the trial, they're the ones who look bad. And so everyone has to ask a couple of key questions. When are they going to get theirs? Have you ever asked that? When is anybody going to get theirs? And by the way, when you ask that question, just remember, if you want justice, you get it too. When is anybody, anybody includes you? We love justice until we need it. We love justice until we need it. And that's what we find out here. We see our only hope for this condemnation. And here's what happens. Jesus, he asks Jesus, and Jesus is silent at first, of course, for obvious reasons. There was nothing really to respond to. The testimony was ridiculous. But Jesus does finally say something. 
He says this, oh, to your question about whether or not I'm the Christ, the Messiah, I am. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, of the power. And Jesus actually does it too, because this would have been right hand of God, but Jesus, Jesus says power because that's what they would have preferred. But they know exactly who he's talking about. And coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, why does Jesus say this? There's two very important questions. This is the first time Jesus is actually going to admit it. Isn't that true? In the whole book of Mark. It's the first time he's going to admit it. It's been hush-hush ever since Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone. And then it's just been sort of a secret. This is the kind of secret you want to get out. Why wouldn't Jesus let it out? And why does he pick this moment to come clean? This is the worst moment to come clean. Because now they've got you and they're going to kill you. This is the worst moment to come clean. And then why would you add this to it? What are you saying by this? Why would you add this to what the priest said? Priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of the... Yeah, let me tell you something. Jesus is going to basically say, let me tell you something about him that you don't know. By adding these two verses, he's going to take two psalms. He's going to take a psalm and Daniel. And I don't have time to go into those. They, they are sermons in themselves. But if you don't know Daniel 7, 13, and 14, you ought to write it down and know it. Every believer ought to know that verse. And every, ver, every believer ought to understand Psalm 110 and verse 1 because Jesus combines them both right here. Psalm 110, 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in your New Testament. You ought to know Psalm 110. It's a messianic psalm. Davidic psalm and the concepts of being a Davidic deliverer in the future come all together right here. So Jesus confesses, I am. And you say, well, why would you tell them now? Well, here's the reason. Here's the reason. When they understood deliverer, okay, we've been talking about this all through Mark, so this isn't new information. They understood him to be a Davidic person, somebody in the line of David, the son of David, okay? They understood him to be a Davidic, and they understood him to be a deliverer. They understood him, though, to be human. They did not understand him to be divine. They didn't think God himself was going to come. They thought God was going to send someone because that's what he always did. So the fact that he would be divine is not something they could grasp. That's the first thing. Now, if they would have read these two verses, they would have understood Daniel 7, 13, with him coming in the clouds. You've got him sitting, which is a picture of sovereign authority. He is equating himself with God here. And then you have him coming in the clouds, okay, which this is all about sovereignty, dominion, and judgment. This is a judgment text. This is Jesus saying, I am going to come, and I will be the one who judges you. That means I'm God. I will be your judge. Oh, by the way, you are judging the judge. How horrific of a moment would that be? You have me on trial. I'm going to have you on trial. That's essentially what those two verses are saying. Yes, Jesus says, you will kill me. Yes, I will be dead. In fact, this is what has to happen. Here's what Jesus is saying. Now get this. I must die, but I have to suffer first. 
I have to suffer and die before I come to judge. This is the peace they didn't have. This is the missing piece. Is that something has to happen, namely the cross, before that judgment. Before the throne. Before the judgment comes, there has to be a cross. This peace they did not have. You say, why did Jesus wait to say I am? Because the people only operated with this peace. Now Jesus can say, because they have him and he's going to suffer and he's going to die, in light of his death, now you can see me as the deliverer that I actually am, that I will do this first before I do this. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't see me except through the lens of my suffering. You can't know who I really am until you see me on the cross. You won't have a full picture. That's why you got to have the cross. You've got to see what he's doing. You say, how is this playing out? You've got to see this. And then Jesus says, if, well, if he's going to come back, if you're going to kill him now, and he says he's going to come back, that means he's got to rise from the dead. So he's predicting his resurrection. Yeah, I'm that guy, and I'll be back. Well, that means I'm going to have to rise from the dead. I'm going to be vindicated by God, and I'm going to have to come back. And there's something you didn't know about me, but you absolutely needed. See, here's the thing. There's something about me you didn't know, but you absolutely needed it. And that was the cross. That's what I'm doing right here on this trial. That is my suffering and my death. You didn't know you needed that. I have to be judged first. That's what Jesus is saying. I have to be judged first. And you say, well, yes, but you're innocent. It's clear in this trial who the guilty ones are. It isn't you. Jesus says, that's exactly right. Only in light of my suffering can you see who I am fully and you can see why I'm here. And it reveals the paradox in this text, the absolute reversal. And here's what it is. Their sin revealed, okay? Your sin is revealed in your condemnation of me. Your sin is revealed in your condemnation of me. That's why I'm here to take the condemnation that actually belongs to you. The condemnation that you're actually bringing to me, I'm actually sitting here on trial to take the condemnation from you. So what? That's the whole reversal. You know what? Sin is basically this. Sin is substituting ourselves for God, which is what they're doing in this text. They're judging him. He's supposed to be judging them. Salvation is just the opposite. It's God substituting himself for us. That's what Jesus is doing at the very same time. Do you see? Jesus is actually substituting himself for us, while in sin we are substituting ourselves for God. Before I come to judge you, I will take your judgment. Before I come to judge you, I will take your judgment. So what you are doing to me right now proves that you need it. Proves that you need someone because you're condemned. What I'm doing, listen, what I'm doing is the only way I can provide it for you. That means I've got I've to take your best sin. And they're revealing it. All the ugliness underneath the wrappings of their self-righteousness that every once in a while in all of our lives reveal itself, reveal its, itself the ways that we've described through this text. 
And now it's all coming clean. And what it's revealing is that they ought to be condemned. And Jesus is saying, that is why I'm here. That is why I have to take your best shots. And I'm actually taking your sin upon me. The sin, you're, the, the condemnation you're giving me is the condemnation I gladly welcome. You think about that. I'm welcoming it. I came here to take your sin, and you're giving it to me in every way you possibly can. But it's why I'm here. And see, they're both exposed. They're both exposed right here in this moment for the first time in the gospel. It's the high point of the gospel. I got to read something to you that I read this week. It wasn't even related to this. It just came out. And here's what it says. As you pause and you ponder the self-chosen powerlessness can suddenly be seen as a higher power, the evident absurdity of what Jesus has experienced morphs into an illuminating mystery and the nose-stopping offensiveness of all the blood and brutality turns into a heart-melting embrace. All of a sudden, if you understood what Jesus was there to do, then all of a sudden, everything in you goes, oh, I want to hug him. I don't want to condemn him. And it comes through powerlessness. Because Jesus said just earlier, we didn't discuss this because Matthew is the one who writes it. Peter, put away your sword because if I wanted to, I could ask God and he'd send me 12 legions of angels right now to solve this problem. Because... God, why aren't you defending yourself? You're on trial. This is the perfect spot to defend yourself. Why aren't you? Power up! Because see, sin's making them power up. But he says this. Listen to this. So powerless that he could not save himself, Jesus was dying to save others and embrace the world. And here is where God shamed us the most. This is where we're the... If you don't feel it yet, then, you, then you're not understanding this trial. God shamed the world's folly, subverted the world's pride, and put death to death through the death of His Son. And then, Reinhold Niebuhr says this, there's a limit. You're going to... There's a limit to what even the power of God can do as power alone. Now, I want you to hear that for a second. Why doesn't God power up? Why doesn't he marshal all of the forces of his abilities to, to sort of bring his power to bear and bring justice and solve this problem? Why doesn't he use that? Here's what he writes. He says, such power does not reach the heart of the rebel. It doesn't reach sinners. This is an amazing statement. Power, he says, can fence us in, but only sacrificial love can find us out. It's only in Jesus' love, because if Jesus would have powered up back, they would have just powered up more. But because he absorbed it and loved them, it's the moment when you go, oh, I'm really the problem. I'm, I'm the one. 
And he says, such is the hard, or he goes, power can fence us in, but only sacrificial love can find us out. Power can win when we are ranged against it, but it cannot win us. Such is the hard, tenacious, willful, festering core of sin at the heart of each one of us that only the equally deliberate, tenacious, listen, that's been the the nature of this text. It's not even about the trial, but listen to what he just said again. Let me say it again. He says, such is the hard, tenacious, willful, festering core of sin at the heart of each one of us. We've seen it in them. that only the equally deliberate, tenacious love disguised in absurd powerlessness, shame and pain and loneliness and desolation of the cross. All for us is the only way he could reach us and subvert us at the same time. It's the only way he could help us see who we are and change our hearts. Because if you power up on me and I power back up on you, you will not change. You won't see your sin. The only way you'll see it is in powerlessness. And that's what Jesus demonstrates here. So he goes on to say there was no other way. It takes the full folly and weakness of the cross to find us out and win us back. This was Jesus winning us back by losing Of course, it's going to come true that the next Christological confession will come from one of the Roman guards who crucifies Jesus in chapter 15 when he says, truly, that was the Son of God. When? When he sees him on the cross. Listen to me. You can come at God any way you want. You can put him on trial in your heart any way you want. You can do that and feel good about your sin and yourself because somehow you can blame God for who you were and the way you grew up and what happened to you and what he's done in the world. You can blame him all you want and let it cover up your own sin. Then you, but, but when you look at the cross, you've got to see something else about God. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. I'm hoping you see your own sin as you condemn me. Look at me on the cross, condemned by you. I'm here for you. When you see that, it changes everything. Let me just close by just asking you a couple. I just jotted down this morning some things. So what happens when you look into the face of God's love? What do you see when you look at the cross? Because it's everything what you see. And this text in 2 Corinthians 4, I read it to you earlier that, you know, Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. But listen to verse 6. But God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, out of a dark, sinful heart that accuses and condemns God. He says, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ look in the face of jesus christ and you will see something about god you cannot come at him the same way you've been coming at him all your life and you cannot see yourself the same way anymore because the light's on 
the lights on and in the darkness of this trial, who Jesus is is crystal clear and who you are and who I am is crystal clear. And we desperately needed what he was providing. So you've put God in the dock. I would tell you, be very careful. Because remember, when you put someone else on the stand, you can feel really good about yourself. That's the worst possible scenario. You put God in the dock, remember, God put himself there for you. And I don't think anything can change your heart. And I got to tell you, when I think about Christianity and the gospel and what Jesus has done for me, that's the only thing that changes my heart. And by the way, it does more than change my view of God. It changes the way I live my life. I can't be the same again. You can't be the same again when you see what Jesus has done for you like that. You just can't do it. Next time you rip your clothes, it'll be because of what you did. Father, we just love your word. We just love so much what you tell us about ourselves. What we've learned about Jesus in just these few hours left in his life is overwhelming. It's more than we can bear. The truth of it is, it's more than we can bear. Pray that your spirit drives it home in ways it's never been driven home. Today, if we see our sin, God, don't, don't let us go one more minute justifying it. And don't let Satan for one more second blind our eyes to the incredible wonder of your love and what you've accomplished for us. Because those are the two things he doesn't want us to see, our own sin and your incredible gift of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.